All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and grab a seat. We'll get started this morning. Welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. I think I recognize most of you. But if you are new this morning, welcome. This is the last one of the semester and glad that you're here. So this will be our last one for the fall. We will gear up again on January the 17th. So go ahead and put that into your calendars. We'll be right back here at PCPC, but not back in the sanctuary. We will be back in the fellowship hall. Some of you have known nothing different than the sanctuary and these um, numbers on pews. Uh, But from here on out, uh, we anticipate beginning again January 17th, we'll be back in the fellowship hall. Your group will be meeting at a table. There will be a number on your table, and that is the way that we will proceed uh, really for indefinitely. So um, if you do not have a group yet, make sure you get one even today. It's important for you to have one today so that starting in the spring, uh, you can start right out of the gate in a group. It's the most important part of what we do here on Tuesday mornings. If you're wondering what we're going to teach uh, in the spring so you can get excited, um, we are going to do the book of Genesis. Not the whole book. There's no way we could get through that. We're actually just gonna cover Adam through Abraham. Uh, it's going to be called In the Beginning, and what we're going to look at is the way that this, these first chapters of the Bible really set the tone of not just the Bible, but they actually explain all of human life, all right? So In the Beginning, that's what we're going to be titling it, uh, the first 15 chapters or so of Genesis. So if you want to start reading ahead, would love for you to do that. But before we do that, today we are concluding our series on the prayers of the Bible with one of my favorites This is the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer. So let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. This Advent season, it is the thing that we celebrate and the thing that we are most grateful for, that you have gifted us your very son. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make us recipients of his um, sacrifice, recipients of his um, grace, and as we see this morning, that you would help us to comprehend the staggering truth that you, Jesus, now live to intercede for us. Give us a glimpse of what that intercession looks like this morning and may it encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John 17 um, is an incredible prayer. This morning, we don't have time to look at the entire thing, uh, but I would encourage you at some point in the next week to read the whole thing. It's a prayer uh, that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross. And in John's story of the gospel, it's a prayer that Jesus prays that is unique to the gospel of John and the way that he prays it. We're gonna be looking just at the last part of the prayer, but before we do that, I wanna first start in the book of Hebrews. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews, or you can uh, just grab your handout. I think we've got it printed there for you as well. This is Hebrews chapter seven. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it's 
the Apostle Paul. I don't think it's the Apostle Paul. I think it's too different in its language to be the Apostle Paul. Some people then go all kinds of places like Barnabas or, I mean, that's really fun, but there's no way to know. Um, But we do know it was a pastor. And in many ways, Hebrews is like reading a sermon. And this um, writer, this preacher is preaching to a people that need encouragement, just like you and I need encouragement. And I think it's important because of what this preacher says about halfway through the letter. I think it's deeply encouraging, and I hope it's encouraging to you. He's talking about Jesus and what makes Jesus different than any other prophet, any other person that God has sent before him. What makes Jesus different than any of the priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people? And here we pick it up in Hebrews 7, verse 22. The preacher says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And what is the this? What makes Jesus better? It's one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. He tells us, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. One of the ways that Jesus is better is that he does not die. But he rose from the dead and his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. But he doesn't stop there. And this is what I want you to hear this morning and I hope it's encouraging to you. Verse 25, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me read that again. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What I think is so deeply encouraging about this verse is that the preacher in Hebrews is telling us that Jesus the Son of God lives to pray for us. And so my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? And if you do believe that, how is it that that actually changes the way that you live and the way that you pray? And as you think about all the prayers that we've looked at in this fall together, to know that as you pray, the Son of God is praying for you. What encouragement does that give you? As we turn now to the high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, I think we get a glimpse of what that prayer might be like. Jesus living to intercede for you, what is that like? If we could hear Jesus' prayer over us, what would it be? I think we get a glimpse in John 17. So I want you to look with me, John 17, verse 20. I'm going to read these verses together, and then we'll jump into them, and we'll look at Jesus' prayer for us. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's one thing I want you to know this morning, brothers, as we conclude our series on prayer, is that Jesus is praying for you. He lives to intercede for you. And at the end of the high priestly prayer, we get a glimpse of Jesus's prayer for us. And what's amazing about this prayer, again, I encourage you to read the entire thing, is that what Jesus prays for in the high priestly prayer is expansive. He prays that he would be glorified. He prays that he would be strengthened. He is praying to the Father to strengthen him in what he is about to do to go to the cross. But at the end of his prayer, he then turns his attention to you and I. And what does he pray for? Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, Jesus prays that we as his church would be unified. And so this morning, real briefly, before you discuss in your groups, I wanna look at three things that Jesus prays for. He prays for much more than these, but I wanna focus in on three things. And the first thing I wanna focus in is that Jesus prays that we would be unified. I want you to look with me, John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, at this point, if you back up in the prayer, you'll see Jesus praying specifically for his disciples, the 12, those who are with him. He knows what's about to happen in going to the cross. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows that Judas is gonna betray him. He knows everything that's about to happen. He knows that they will scatter. He's praying that they would be strengthened. But then he turns his attention not to his disciples, not to the 12, but what does he say? I do not pray for these only. In other words, I'm not just praying for my disciples, the 12, but I'm praying for all of those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, I'm gonna pray for all of the disciples, all of those who will follow me throughout all history and all time, all of those who will come after the 12. All of those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, who is Jesus praying for? This morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ because of the words of the apostles, the words that have been recorded for us in the Bible, that means that Jesus here in the high priestly prayer is praying for you. I want that to sink in for you. The preacher in Hebrews says that Jesus lives to intercede for us. Jesus in high priestly prayer is praying for all of those who will trust in him 
through the word. Jesus lives to pray for you. And this is his prayer. Verse 21, that they may be all one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does Jesus pray for? He prays that all those who will believe in him would be one. That we would be unified. And I want you to question that this morning of all the things that Jesus could pray for, for us. All those who would come after the first disciples, his church scattered across cultures and time and history and place, generations and generations and generations. The thing he prays for first, that we would be one. Why? Because as surely as he knows that Judas will betray him, surely he knows that Peter will deny him, he knows that unity is going to be a difficult thing for the people of God. And if you've been with us in this Bible study and you've watched us as we've walked through different parts of the Bible and the story of God's people, <laughs> this is nothing new. We tend to be at odds with each other as human beings. And we see this from the very, very, very beginning. When sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve, their sons, Cain and Abel, we see hatred. We see division. We even see murder. If you're with us in our study through the book of Judges, we saw sin on display in its most horrific and grotesque ways it could possibly be. The ways that human beings that our sin doesn't just affect us and destroy us, that we actually destroy one another. And what we are witnessing now in our current cultural moment is not new. That we live truly in a divided age. In an age that we are warring against each other. In some ways, literally as the war in Ukraine continues to rage on, in other ways, figuratively, as we are divided by what we think and our worldview and politics, and we would be foolish to assume that those kinds of divisions don't also seep into the church. And they do. In article after article after article, perhaps you've read some of them, have, have written, people have written about how our cultural moment has affected the American church in ways that it never has before. That churches are being divided. No longer over just simple things like what color is the carpet and what kind of music you're going to have. <laughs> but deep issues of political belief and worldview and how you see the world. And here is Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, and he prays that we as his church, capital C, that we would be one. And what does this kind of unity, what does this oneness look like? In what way does Jesus pray that we would be unified? Look how he categorizes this. Verse 21, that they may be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. How is he calling, how is he praying for us to be unified in the same way that Jesus is unified with the Father? In the same way that the Trinity is one. Jesus is praying that we as his people would be one. And in doing so, that we would fully display the image of God to the world. Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter four, he talks about the kind of unity that we are called to. I want you to listen to some of the ways that Paul describes this kind of unity. Ephesians four, verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the word, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now listen to some of this language. What does unity require of us? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What does unity require of us? Well, he says it requires humility and gentleness and patience. These are not attributes that we typically celebrate in our modern age. Humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another in love, and listen to this, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That there would be peace among us as the people of God because we have peace with God through Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Verse four, Ephesians four, verse four, Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father in all who is over all, through all, and in all. It's the same kind of language that Jesus is using in John 17. Paul's point is saying, he's like, look, there's one God. And if you are a follower of the Lord God, that makes us united together. There's one baptism. And if you've been baptized into Jesus, you've been baptized in the same baptism as any other Christian all over the world throughout time. There is one spirit, and this is the most staggering part of all of it, that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. And what that means, as you look around this, this room, this sanctuary this morning, is that for all of us who are followers of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit is dwelling in each of us. Not a different spirit. <laughs> Not that I have a different spirit than you do. But the same Holy Spirit who dwells in me dwells in you. What should that do? That's true. What should that do for the way that we are now bound to one another? How deeply connected should we actually be if the same spirit now dwells in all of us and is working in us, giving us the ability, the gospel-powered ability to be humble, to be patient, to be gentle, 
to bear with each other in love. Now, practically, I think what this means is that we, as followers of Jesus, have more in common with other followers of Jesus who live on the complete opposite side of the world than those who might live on our own blocks who do not follow the Lord. That those who have grown up in a radically different culture, under a radically different political regime, and yet know Jesus Christ, that we have more in common with them than we do with someone that we grew up with who isn't a Christian. That the gospel and Christianity should transcend politics, it should transcend culture, it should transcend nationality, it should transcend race, it should transcend every single human distinction because we should be one as Jesus is one with the Father. But if we're honest, that is hard. And of course it is. And I think that's why Jesus prays for it. Why? Why would he pray for a unity? It's the second thing I want you to see. What does he pray for? Jesus prays that not only would we be unified, but he also prays for our witness. He prays for our witness. Look with me, verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you or me that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Why does Jesus pray for our unity? Well, I think in part because this is what humanness was always designed to be, that we would live in harmony with one another, that we would be image bearers, loving each other in the same way that he is love. But it doesn't stop there in our broken world that is, yes, divided and always has been. For the people of God and the church to love one another and to be unified in a divided world bears witness to the power of the gospel. That when we are united to one another, Jesus says that the world would know that the Father sent him. Because I think all of us inside the church and definitely outside the church know that it makes no sense for people who would ordinarily have nothing to do with each other, for people who even might be enemies, whether it is politically or nationally, that these enemies would be called friends because of Jesus. And we see this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. That it bears witness to the power of God when ordinary enemies become friends because of the gospel. Jesus prays that they may be perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you know me. First Peter 2 verse 9, Apostle Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been redeemed in order to bring redemption to the world. We've been given the light of Jesus in order to be a light. We have been called together as his people, each of us united to Jesus and now unified to one another so that the world in seeing us would see the power of the gospel. It's that old song maybe you heard if you've grown up around church or grew up around Christian music, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's actually true. It's the only explanation for why ordinary people who had nothing to do with each other would be friends. So the third and final thing, before you go to your groups, what does Jesus pray for? He prays that we would be unified so that we would be a witness. All of this is impossible without, first and foremost, our union with him. So the last thing he prays for, and I think this is the most encouraging, that Jesus prays that we would be unified, not only with each other, but that we would be unified with him. That we would find our identity in Christ. Verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. <laughs> what a prayer. That Jesus' desire is that we would be with him. That we with him where he is. That we would see, he prays, that he would see his glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now here is prayer, verse 25. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I want you, I'm going to focus in on that last verse. Verse 26. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because he has made it known to you, and he will continue to make it known. He lives to intercede for us. And as he prays, he says that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and listen to this, and I in them. And I in them. Jesus lives to intercede for you and he lives to dwell in you. That we would be unified with him. That ultimately all that he's praying for, this unity and this witness, it finds its power in our union with Christ. And if all of this so far has been hard to really wrap your mind around, to really believe and take to heart that Jesus lives to intercede for you, that he's praying for you, that he wants us to be unified, that this is a witness to the world, this should be the most overwhelming. That in the same way, the Father is united to the Son. Jesus is praying that we would be united to the Son. In our union with Jesus, we are united to one another.
Apostle Paul put it this way, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 6, verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Our union with Jesus is the most important part of the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says that it is the foundation of all our spiritual experience. It's the fuel, it's the thing that makes the gospel work. It's the way that we fight sin, the way that we push against temptation. It's the the thing that empowers us to love one another and be humble and to be patient. Jesus himself put it this way and it's actually written on a plaque on our courtyard in John 15 that apart from him we can do nothing. And here Jesus is in the high priestly prayer praying that we would never forget that that we would be united to him, that he would continue to be the vine, that we would be the branches, and that through Jesus and through Christ alone, we would bear fruit. And so as you go to your groups, as you consider all of the prayers that we've looked at in this semester together, as you think about your own life of prayer, I want you to leave with this, that behind every prayer that you and I pray, there is a greater person who's praying. The Lord Jesus Christ praying for you. And in every petition, in every desire that you have, every prayer that you throw out there not knowing if anyone's listening, every prayer that you might be afraid to pray because you are worried or afraid of what the answer might be, that in everything that we pray for, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is praying that you would be united to him and that he would continue to work the gospel in and through your hearts to change you and to make you more like him. That is deeply encouraging. That is fuel for those who are powerless, and that is like a cold cup of water for those who are parched. And so as we conclude, as you meet with your groups, and then as you kind of enter in fully into this Christmas season, I want you to remember that this is what we celebrate at Advent. Christ has come to us, and now he lives to pray for you. Let's pray, Father in heaven, Oh, that these high and lofty truths would somehow sink deeply into our souls. I pray for my brothers this morning, even as I uh, studied once again this amazing prayer. I confess so much of it just seems so hard to truly comprehend. Even as I pray now, it seems almost audacious to assume that you, Jesus, are praying for us. And yet that is what exactly what you're doing. 
May we receive that kind of grace this morning. The grace of prayer. The grace of not only being invited to pray, but the grace of being prayed for. That we would fully receive you, Jesus, and your prayers over us. We ask in your powerful and holy and mighty name. Amen. Go to your groups. Thanks for being with us this fall. Again, we'll be back together in the Fellowship Hall, January the 17th, working our way through the first chapters of Genesis. If you don't have a group this morning, find me or Elaine. We'll help you find a group.